Okay, Psalm 98 verse 6 reads, With trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the King the Lord. So I thought that's one way to get your attention after the fellowship break, right? Um, But it was so amazing just being in Israel and uh, just hearing this. You know, the trumpet, these were uh, two of our guides, our local guides, and they were both very musical. And the first guy with the trumpet would get our attention. You know, if he was moving on to the next site and he wanted to pull us together to go to the bus or whatever, um, you know, he would he would blow the trumpet. And then this other guy, Michael, that was at Mount Masada, uh, at Masada. Um, he was blowing the, the shofar or the, the horn. It is a hollowed out ram's horn that was used a lot. You read about that a lot in the Bible. So it was God's way of um, announcing things of importance. Uh, the priests would typically, you know, blow the um, the shofar and the trumpet as a call to war. Um, it was an announcement of festivals, and during the worship and praise during the festivals, they would play musical instruments like this and many others. So that's just a, you know, just a little something from the trip that I th- thought I would introduce you guys to. Okay, so we continue today speaking about our trip to Israel, which we uh, experienced as a pilgrimage. Remember what a pilgrimage is? Okay, it's a, it's a journey to a special place to encounter God, uh, done in community and accompanied by celebration and joy. Okay, and although this trip to Israel was a, a type of pilgrimage, there are many other pilgrimages that we can do without going to Israel. All right, you know, when we go to a church camp, we can see that as a pilgrimage. We're going to go there with the purpose of encountering God in a new, fresh way. With God's community, you know, connecting and having times of celebration and joy. Right. So um, we continue today. Last week, you might remember, the week. This is the, you know, the trip that we undertook through Israel. We started on the west coast, went north, and ended in Jerusalem. Nolene and I spent an extra few days where we actually went down to the Dead Sea and to um, Masada. Right. But that was covered last week. Um, I'm not going to read through the scripture, but there's a call God in his commandments to his people. He instructed them to go down, or up rather. You always went up to Jerusalem, even if you were going downhill, right? Because it was a spiritual ascent. He called his people to go to the special place, which was Jerusalem, three times a year for three of the seven big festivals. You see, God knew what his people needed, and he knows what we need in terms of just regular routines. Okay, so three times a year, all of his people in Israel and those who followed Judaism who were living outside Israel to make this trip up to Jerusalem, to encounter God in a special way, to do it in community, in other words, to bond with your brothers and sisters from elsewhere, and always it was accompanied with joy and celebration. Uh, we see it in the New Testament as well. You know, Jesus' parents took him on pilgrimage uh, you know, up to Jerusalem, so Jesus and his parents, and the first in the first century, we see the Jewish people and Jewish Christians even um, obeying this call 
to pilgrimage. So last week I spoke about how pilgrimage draws us closer to God and how pilgrimage, the way God designed it, involves celebration and joy. Today I'm going to make one point and Nolene's going to make one point. Now the first point I'm going to make is that pilgrimage provides perspective. Pilgrimage provides perspective. You know, if you think about it, going on a special journey to encounter God with God's people with a, with a heart of, I am going to celebrate God and I'm going to be joyful in the presence of God and his people. Doing trips like that breaks the rhythm of ordinary life. It takes us out of our day-to-day realities. It calls us out of our normal, often comfortable surroundings. And it enables us to gather with people and to engage with people and to have table fellowship with people and to worship with people that we might not otherwise spend much time with. Um, pilgrimage helps us, gives us opportunity to learn from others, from the experience of others, to understand what people are going through, to give advice. Going away to a special place helps us to, to see our own world differently and to come back just with, with new excitement and new passion and new advice and context that we can apply. It helps us to see the world from a different perspective. And when you stand on top of a mountain, compared to at the bottom of a mountain, you see things differently, don't you? You know, whenever we travel, Nolene and I travel, and I've said this often to her, and if I see a beautiful landscape and a hill or a mountain, I have such a desire to stop the car and walk up that mountain. I enjoy hiking, but I just want to see the surroundings. I want to be on that mountain just to see, you know, the beautiful scenery around us. Obviously, we can't always do that, right? Um, and God, God knew this. So many, so many encounters with God happened on tops of mountains. And I was thinking about this. You know, I don't um, have absolute certainty of this, but I think apart from, you know, the fact that an elevated place in people's minds gets them closer to God. Not that God is up there, but it was just what people associated with. Let me go up to the Lord. But I also really believe that God wanted to give his people perspective. These mountains, we're going to show you some slides of the mountains that we went up you know, in Israel. It just gives you perspective of God's beauty, God's creation. You understand, you know, when you can see the River Jordan over there and you can see the mountains of Moab and you look to the left and you can see the Mediterranean Sea, it somehow just gives perspective. And when you have that geographical perspective and an understanding of of God's country, you know, that he has given you, it also gives you, I believe, spiritual perspective. You're able to see the big picture. So a lot of, you know, what happened in the... Uh, that we read about in the Bible, Old Testament, and you are associated with, with mountains. And I just want to share with you a few slides here. This is the wall of Jerusalem. No, this is Jerusalem. Sorry. I've seen so many slides. This is Mount Jerusalem. You read about this, and I encourage you to do this. a really interesting and kind of strange passage of Scripture. It is in Deuteronomy 11. Before God's people you know, are going to enter the uh, promised land, God says... On the Mount of Jerusalem, proclaim blessings. And on the Mount of Ebal, which is to the left, pronounced curses. And he made six representatives of six tribes stand on Mount Jerusalem, and representatives of the other six tribes stand on Mount Ebal. Why would God do that? Now, was it a, a warning and preparing them that one day you will be divided? 
Or you're going to enjoy both of my, you're going to experience both of my, my blessings as well as my curses. But to actually stand on that mountain and to read the passage of scripture is kind of special. You kind of get a sense of, man, it's cool being on the mountain of blessing, but imagine being on the mountain of curses. Okay, so just being there, it gives perspective and it, it helped me to think about, yes, you know, God provides blessings for his people, but he also poured out curses and judgment at times when his people were not grateful, you know, for the blessings of God. Okay, so that was a special sort of mountaintop experience for us. Um, this is looking towards Jerusalem. That is the Dome of the Rock, a building and a, a statue to the life and teachings of Muhammad. Yeah, the oh, there we go. We've got a convert from Islam here. <laughs> you should be teaching this, Layla. Right. But we were on the Mount of Olives, and once again, just to you know, have a view over the old city of Jerusalem and to see the you know the main buildings and what's happening where this is a special sort of mountaintop experience as well gave us perspective um, this is a view also just from uh, the the city of Jerusalem over the rest of Jerusalem Israel is amazingly hilly and mountainous place really it's I didn't kind of expect that but lots of you know hills and mountains this is um, on top of Masada and it's amazing how quickly the geography changes. You go from pretty lush, green, you know, fertile vegetation to desert. This is desert. So when you speak about, you know, wanderings in the wilderness and the desert, believe me, as soon as you get up to the south of Jerusalem, the rest of Israel and about half of Israel looks like this. Okay, so you really get perspective from the top. This is the view the other side towards the Dead Sea. Okay, very, very barren. This is desert. Right? Not much lives there at all. And uh, that's on the, the wall of Jerusalem. We went for a, a walk around. We didn't quite go all the way around. We had to get back to get to the airport. But uh, just sitting on the wall of Jerusalem and seeing the sites and the churches and you know, places of worship uh, is special. So pilgrimage provides perspective, geographical perspective but also the interactions and engagements with people from different parts of the world give perspectives. Um, shortly after landing at Tel Aviv, we met up with James Becknell. He was there with a local guide to collect you know, the, uh, the people arriving between a certain time, and we had an hour or so just to chat with James. I know Nolene connected with him really well. Great Bible teacher, but almost in no time at all, you get into a deep level. You know, you're sharing. Um, how can we help you? Can you? How can I pray for you? So these sort of interactions were part of God's purpose for pilgrimage, where you meet people from other nations, and on this walk, this journey up to Jerusalem, you would talk, you know, you would share, you'd give advice. So that's really part of, you know, what we experienced as well in terms of pilgrimage providing perspective. Uh, table fellowship, deep water chats, uh, tears sometimes, you know, uh, how, can, how can we pray for you? What, you know, what can we do to help? Those sort of interactions happen when people come together with a common purpose of encountering God, getting to know my brothers and sisters. And you know what? We're going to make times for joy and celebration because we remember how good God is. You know, we see our spiritual landscape, we see our church landscape much more clearly, clearly when we meet up with and build friendships with disciples from outside of Port Elizabeth. Um, you know, Nolene and I have experienced this so often, and we, 
We encourage you, we have encouraged each of you and are standing here this morning appealing to you to build friendships and relationships outside of our church. You know, we have great relationships here and you can get, you can get help, you can serve in this community, but broaden your horizons. You know, Nolene and I attended the MTA for, for six years from about 2011, I think, to 2017. And those times were so good for us. Twice a year we would make pilgrimage in a sense, although we didn't call it that, but we went up to Joburg and we would be in classroom settings. We would be taught by amazing teachers and, and evangelists and just amazing disciples on, you know, the nature of God and what it means to be a disciple and, you know, how to do ministry, you know, efficiently or as best we can. And those times were so helpful for us, not just to learn, but to connect with people. And Nolene and I were, were very deliberate, you know, depending on what the challenges were and what the needs were. We would go up there deciding, this time we've got to meet with Dave and Beth Pochter, for example. Let's try to have a lunch with them. And those times give perspective. And, you know, over the years I have encouraged, you know, this church to attend MTA. And I know a few of you have done that. I know Levuyu and Pindi went to at least one MTA. It was great, wasn't it? You know, that's just part of getting perspective. You know, the kids who go to Campus Encounter and the swamp camps, eh? Not so misleading. Wasn't that great? Just to get perspective and to build friendships and connections that last forever. And, and the, the, you know, the other girls who've been to Campus Encounter. And those pilgrimages are so helpful to get perspective and to get context. It is like standing on the top of a mountain, you know, and seeing the landscape of God's people. And these different congregations and churches and different experiences from your peers. It's a chance to be inspired. It's a chance to get advice and input. You know, so often, I think we make decisions based on what we see in Port Elizabeth. And without the connections and without asking advice, you know, before we make decisions, if our, if our reference group is only in Port Elizabeth, and obviously as a reference group and as people who give advice, we need to be in each other's lives. We need to grow in wisdom so that we can get advice and give context. But if this is all we depend on before we make big decisions in life, we are missing out on a wealth of knowledge and experience that is available to us just like that. You know, Dean at the moment is in, in Dallas. Now, I don't know of any church movement like ours where wherever you go in the world, you've, you've got a home. There is a place you can stay. Where there's a church, there's a family. Nolene and I have stayed in so many houses and homes of disciples, and we feel so at home there. And those are always times to connect and to learn and to give and to serve. You know, our trip to Israel, I mentioned last week, 12 countries were represented, and I think about 35 individual churches. Isn't that amazing? And you together, you're having breakfast, you're having dinner, you're on buses, you're walking through these sites. God knows this is God's family of all nations and all places. And that's why God told his people in the Old Testament, and the principles are still true for us, make regular times, three times a year. Get together from your brothers and sisters from around the world. Make opportunity. Yeah, we can't all go to Israel, I understand. But every opportunity we have to connect with brothers and sisters in South Africa, Southern Africa, Africa, the world, take them. Provides perspective and context. And helps us to stay faithful and to get great advice and input into our lives. 
I've deviated completely from what I was going to say, but that happens sometimes, eh? I'm sure. Amen. I actually think I've pretty much covered what I what I wanted to do, um, but let me just re- read this quote. This is from a theologian, um, a woman called Becca Harbert, and she studies um, pilgrimage and journeying together as God's people. She writes, we fall into spiritual complacency, a rigidity of thinking that our location and our local experience is everything. I do think there is an experience of pilgrimage that dislocates us in a good way. Think about that. You know, it is not always comfortable, you know, to reach out and to go somewhere to a different place. Um, We can easily get into a comfort zone of this is my house, this is my home, this is my city, this is my church. And amen, we can still be faithful and we can, you know, still grow in Christ with that. But it There are far more opportunities, church. You know, if we broaden our horizons, that we build relationships, that we make connections. You know, whenever people come to PE, you know, teachers or preachers from elsewhere in South Africa and the world, you know, every time, and I'll I'll put it on the group and I'll continue to put it on the group, I say so-and-so is in town. Please take some time out. Have a cup of coffee with them. Have a lunch with them. And you, that is that is a way of reaching out when brothers and sisters come here. Yeah, we don't always have to go out. So I encourage us to use opportunities. You know, we are not just stand um, the the philosophy, the theology of churches. We understand it as a movement. It's just not standalone, isolated churches doing our own thing. We have connections. I encourage you to use the connections. Amen. Pilgrimage, you know, gives perspective. All right, then, um, I don't know if I have any others. Oh, sorry, this one last one. This is just an example of the many meals we had. This was in um, Samaria, you know, or the West Bank. Um, anyway, this was the self-governing part of, of Israel. We had an amazing meal prepared for us, you know, eating and experiencing the culture and, and eating this amazing food. Oh, it was wonderful. And at times like this, you know, the discussions that take place, this is table fellowship in, in a very special way. So find opportunities to have table fellowship that people that you don't normally eat with. It is amazing. These are the 13 African teachers who, who were there together with the, with the other, whatever, 30 or 40 disciples from elsewhere in the world with our wives. So this was very special. Uh, one evening after dinner, we spent time with Doug Jacoby. Jacoby uh, we just shared our appreciation. We shared how things are going. And times like this are so special. I just want to hold up again the African churches. In many ways, the rest of the world is looking at the African churches as models of, co- of cooperation and unity. Not all saying we're perfect, but the way that we interact with each other, the community and the unity, and the way we encourage one another. Believe me, the churches in America are saying, I wish we had this in America. Amen. We, Nolene, Nolene met um, many of the African teachers and their wives for the first time. I'm, it was the first time I'd met with them physically. I've met with some of them physically by Zoom. Obviously, we, we meet and we talk, but it was especially special, you know, that God used this opportunity to strengthen the bonds and re- the relationships between the African teachers and the African churches. And I believe God's going to use the African churches in an amazing way. Watch the space. You know, as others, you know, areas of our movement in the world are going through, 
real, real challenges. I'm not saying we're not, but there is something that holds the African churches together that God is using and will use in future. And this pilgrimage of Nolene and, you know, that we were so privileged to be part of really helped to forge these, these friendships and these relationships and sounding boards that we have. Help keep me hopeful you know, for our church and our churches in Africa and the world. Amen. So Nolene is going to speak about how pilgrimage builds faith. Yeah, it was an incredible experience, and I think definitely um, I realized how much it impacts on how I read the Bible now, having um, seen some things that I had not seen before with my own eyes. Um, you know, we always speak about this where when we do Bible study, we really need to do good exegesis. Remember, Michael has come way back and spoken about exegesis where you first look at the context of what it would have meant for those people there and then back in the day when it was written to them before you start pulling it into your own context. And being able to experience these places really does give a context that I don't have because I live in a totally different world. I live in a totally different culture. I live in a completely different country with different um, climate, you know, with different... Um, structures geographically. So it really is amazing to be able to go and see how naturally I've been reading Mark and um, how things now that I see in Mark, I just am reading them with a different mindset. And I want to share some of those things with you. But I think as, as Neil said, it, it doesn't mean that we have to physically go there ourselves. Some of us will get the opportunity to go, and I certainly will encourage. I've already chatted to some of the campus kids, and I said, you want to travel? Put Israel first on your list. If you are a Christian, go to Israel if you can. Um, so I think that, that is something, though, that we, we have so much online stuff nowadays, though. I know when I was teaching the preteens, one of my Goals always which with teaching them was I wanted them to have their own faith. And I knew for them to have their own faith, they need to believe that this is true. They can't just take their parents' faith and believe because their parents believe. So I used to use a lot of um, YouTubes, clips, etc. that I would get to show them that these places that you read about in the Bible, they really exist. And now I've actually been to some of the places that I was showing them when I was teaching them. So it's pretty cool. Um, one of our guides actually during COVID, you know, being a tour guide was his bread and butter. It was his job. And so under COVID, obviously he couldn't do any tours. So what he did, he started doing virtual tours. And he actually created a whole platform. He has a website now where you can go. I think he started off just doing it for free because he said he just had to keep busy. He was going nuts. Um, and then he saw that people were interested. And because some people will never have the opportunity, whether it's finances, whether it's health issues, but they want to explore the Holy Land, they can now do it virtually. 
And I was just looking yesterday, there is a lot of stuff online that if you want to start exploring places like that, people who've done tours where you can YouTube and they will take you to some of those places. And some of the places were the places that I've been as well, which is really, really awesome. You know how they say seeing is believing? You know that catchphrase? Or a picture is worth a thousand words. And in many ways it's true because I can try and tell you and talk to you and explain to you about these places. But if I show you a picture, it's so much more clear. Not so. So I want us to dig into the Bible a little bit. I just want to show you an example of how having been there and having seen some of these places changes my my way of viewing what I'm reading. Okay, doesn't necessarily change the context or anything like that, but it makes it so much more alive and real for me. Now, I've always loved archaeology. Who else here loves archaeology? Loves reading about old stuff and how it came about. Hey, no one else like archaeology? Who likes history? Ah, okay, there's some fellow fans. So I've always, and maybe that's why with the preteens as well, I would show them all these places because I love archaeology. But if you've got your Bible, please turn to Mark 12, because I'd love us to read this together. So this is not a a lesson per se um, about Mark, but hey, you know, the Lord can convict us through passages that we read, whether we are reading them specifically to get a lesson out of it or just for me to show you some things that I saw for the first time. So as as I as we read this passage, I want you to just think about what do you picture in your mind? Because all of us are visual when we read the Bible. And there's certain things we picture and we imagine. Okay. So I want you to just think what what do you picture? I'm going to read in Mark chapter twelve from verse one to verse twelve. It says, Then he, that's Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head, and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. They beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Because they knew he had said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So as I read this for the first time, I started being like, wow, now I know what a vineyard looked like. We have an image of vineyards. You know, those of you who've been to the Western Cape, obviously tons of vineyards there. You see the trellises, you see the the, the vineyards on, on trellises. And interestingly here it says, 
A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it. And that's what we used to see in South Africa. We see fences, not so, fences of iron or steel or whatever it is they build their fences of. In Israel, that's not what a fence is. Can you see what a fence is? Where's the pointer? Sorry. Oh, the middle button. This is a fence. It's a stone wall. Everywhere you go, you see vineyards. And they are surrounded by stone walls. Because I'm telling you, when you're in a hilly country, there's plenty of stones. Plenty of stones. Okay. So this is what he meant when he spoke about a fence. It's how the... The authors, how the translators interpreted what was written. So it's not a fence in the fence that we see it in our eyes. It's a wall. It's a stone wall. Okay. And then just a little bit later on, it says, he dug out a pit for a wine press. What do you imagine when you think about digging out a pit for a wine press? What do you picture in your mind's eye? And he built a watchtower. Okay. That is a watchtower. That is what was built. Now, there's nothing on top there, but generally there would have been a shaded reeds that would have been placed on top of that. Sometimes, I actually Googled these, sometimes they are taller, they're higher. This one is not particularly tall, but sometimes they would have been taller, but they would have had a shade, shaded, something to shade them, because believe me, in summer, it gets unbearably hot in this land. They don't get a lot of rain. We had more rain than they knew what to do with while we were there in the first couple of days. But it was winter. And it's not typical. Okay, so can you see now what a watchtower looks like? We, we might have a completely different idea of what a, what a watchtower looks like. Okay, so that they can take care of this vineyard and make sure robbers don't come in. Because honestly, a wall like this, you can jump over. It might keep some of the animals out and it does show, it does demarcate what land belongs to you, what is yours. But it's not a fence that's going to keep people out, so you need to be alert. Okay, so that's what Jesus was speaking about, but let's now talk about the wine press. That is a wine press. This is rock. Now in, in Jerusalem, I'm going to sh- in Israel, I'm going to show you later. There is sandstone that is everywhere. The hills, the land is sandstone. You know what sandstone is? It's been laid down, it's been hardened, it's been compacted over decades and centuries, and they then quarry it. But here they would dig out this pit. Okay. This area, can you see how it's been slightly dug out? I hope you can see it. And can you see this channel here? So guess what you would have done here? You would have put the grapes. You would have taken your shoes off, made sure you've been in a mikvah, made sure you've washed your feet really, really well. And then all of you prance into it and you start treading out the grapes. And the juice from the grapes runs here into the wine press, into this, into this vetted area. So that would be the wine press area 
running into this area where the juice would collect. And obviously from here, it can be taken out in their jars. Okay. Did you ever imagine that is what Jesus was speaking about? Okay. Now, obviously, this has been pretty, pretty worn, and many of the structures have been very worn down. But this, it was so strange for me how, before I read this, I had a very vague picture of possibly what this would have looked like. I think I kind of imagined it would have been like a stone structure with a little wall, and everybody would have jumped in, and you would have pranced around, and, you know, you would have treaded out the wine. But doesn't it make so much sense that you would build this in an area where there was natural stone? You would create a nice flattened area yourself by chiseling it out with a lower area so that naturally the juices could run in there. So sensible and so practical. And so as I read this now, that's that's what I started seeing as I was reading it. And I was like, wow, so that's what it was like. Okay. And you know what? These things are accessible. If you had to read this and go and look, okay, so let me check. What, what were they speaking about when they spoke about a wine press? You might see some dodgy stuff, so you've got to know your literature. Okay? Maybe that's where I got my idea of this little wine press that you prance around in, you know. Um, a watchtower. Um, the fence. Anything like that. You can, you can go and check out these words and, and try and understand. And what I did notice as well is that in fact, I don't, I'm not sure I need to look into this more, but not all the, the vines are like on trellises like we know them. Some of them are quite high up on trellises. Higher than what we would expect, you know. Um, and maybe that's because it created some shade for them, some natural shade. Maybe in your vineyard you would do that. But, you know, those are still things that we can look into. But I think it was just so, so it, it created just such a real picture for me to be able to, to look at this um, and then be able to read it just with a different mind's eye. Another passage I want to go to is... Um, I think I'm, oh, I'm just, it's a little bit further on in um, Mark chapter 13. Um, there are actually other things I could just go and talk about them, but this is where Jesus was now coming to his final days. And so he was going into Jerusalem. It was pretty cool for me as well because it says that Jesus stayed in, in Bethany and from Bethany he would go down into Jerusalem, and knowing where he was, we we saw the Kidron Valley so much. In fact, one of the pictures Neil showed was of the Kidron Valley. So you have this valley, you have the mount, and then you have the valley, and across the valley is where um, the Mount of Olives would have been, where the Garden of Gethsemane would have been. So, And we walked down that road, remember, down, down the road into the Kidron Valley. And so Jesus would have constantly been walking that route. He would have been, he went out every evening. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. And even just reading that, it was like, okay, I know Bethany's not really that far away. And Jesus would have constantly been in and out this area, coming down past the Garden of Gethsemane into the city. And then in the evening, he would have gone back. And the, the, the temple was actually on that side, close to where he would have come in. And so he used to go into the temple, and it says, as in verse 1, as he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, 
What massive stones. What impressive buildings. Now, what do you imagine when you think of what massive stones? We get a picture in our head of how big these stones are. Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left there on another that will not be thrown down. Now, not one stone is hyperbolic. Um, It's like this place is going to be trashed. Because there actually was a section that was not thrown down. But it's a very, very small section of the temple complex. And we were there. And this was one of the highlights for me. Have you guys heard about the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem? It's the most sacred place for Jewish people. Because it is part of the original Western Wall which remains of the temple complex, the temple that was built by Solomon. And we got to go there. And this is just something that it says, Dear visitors, welcome to the Western Wall, the remnant of the Jewish temple and the place where the divine presence rests. Remember the Shekinah glory of God that filled the temple? So they believe God's presence is still there. It's a holy, holy place. You can go and Google about this and you can see how on Shabbat, Friday evening, and I'm so sorry we didn't go there. We only got to Jerusalem that day and we were tired. So we didn't go down to the Western Wall. Some people did. And on Shabbat, Friday evening, they start gathering there. And it's a celebration because it's the beginning of the Sabbath. Um, And so they're saying... Please respect the site and those worshipping here and abide by the site's regulations. And then it says, Friday evening and Saturday are holy Jewish Sabbath. Please respect it by refraining from taking photos with cell phones, writing, because that's work, and cameras, taking pictures. This is respecting the Jewish Sabbath when you're not meant to work. So, man, it would have been hard for me to not take any photos. And I know some people did take photos because obviously we have records of it. But this is what the Wailing Wall looks like. This is the Western Wall. So up to there is the original stones, this section. And it comes a little bit more this way. This is all part of the actual temple that Solomon built, which is amazing. And they've divided it, and hey, I've got issue with this, but who am I? This side is the men's side. This side is the women's side. The men's side is twice, three times as big as the women's side. They have desks in there. Yeah, they have nothing. The women crowd at the wall. And I think probably typically, although maybe in Israel it's different, you get many, many very sincerely, deeply um, spiritual, religious, Jewish men. But that's not like that in South Africa. Women tend to be more spiritual and religious than men. We would need that, that side in South Africa. <laughs> but I was like, I looked at Nubs from another photo that I have. It's so empty there. What's with this? Yeah, you've got to wait for a woman to move away before you go up to the wall. <laughs> so these are the stones and Can you see these papers stuck in to the wall? These are prayers 
of people. Um, this wall is a sacred place for them. Many of them, I didn't show you a picture of this, but there's behind, um, behind what we, I'm, where I'm standing and taking the photo from, behind my back, are these cupboards. And inside the cupboards are books, lots of books, prayer books. So you can actually go there, you can take a book out the cupboard, you can go, or if you can read Hebrew, and you can go and sit. You can see their chairs here, their chairs there. You can sit here, there are lots of chairs at the front. And you can sit and you can read. And you can stand at the wall and you can read. And as they read, they sway like this, and they put the books over their faces. And it's a way of focusing on just them before their God. And then you can write your prayer and you can place it. It's quite hard finding a crack that's empty. I found a crack that's empty. I have a prayer that was placed there. I won't tell you what the prayer is. But um, they clear those out. Obviously, they can't leave them all there because they fall out and there are lots lying on the front here. But these stones are massive. 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 And I want to show you this because... Everywhere you go in Israel, there are quarries. And this is the sandstone. They're quarrying out the sandstone. And it's the very same stone that was used to build the temple. They still build in in that same stone. Because it's soft enough to quarry, but it's durable. It lasts. And so they build houses. This actually is in Palestine. You can see the Palestinian flag flying there. And this is a church that has been built there. Um, many churches all over Israel. Many, many Christian churches. And this is stone. It's the same stone that this church has been built from. Houses are built from it. Churches are built from it. Shops are built from it. Um, but obviously these are much smaller. The sto- the, it's more like a bit bigger than brick sizes. But the, the, the stones, I know that they have found some stones in the temple wall, and I found this hard to believe. I was like, yo, but that's big. They speak about some being like five meters long or more, some of the stones that are on the very, very bottom, the foundation. I would say on average some of those stones were like maybe two meters. I don't know how deep they are. I don't know whether anyone knows how deep they are. Um, but they are massive. They are massive. And so again, just reading this, as I read this passage again, I could picture this in my mind, that when Jesus was saying, when they saying, hey, look what impressive stones, I'd be like, oh yeah, now I know what those stones look like. They are impressive. This wall is impressive, and it's not even the temple. If you have to go and actually Google and YouTube the temple, they will show you what the temple looked like. Especially Solomon's temple. And I can understand when they built the second temple why people were so, they were mourning many people because it was so unimpressive compared to this temple, you know. But it really is impressive and the stones are massive, you know. So it just gives me a different idea of when they were saying this, why they were saying it. And also why it is such a sacred place for them. Today, just another sh- small one I want to speak about is in Mark two, verse one to four. Sticking in Mark, 
So this is where um, Jesus heals this paralytic. And it says, when he entered Capernaum, again after some days, remember I think Neil shared about Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' hometown when he was doing his ministry. It was reported that he was home. So many people that he was home. See, he was home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the message to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the stretcher on which the paralytic was lying. Okay, I'm just going to read up to there. The roof. They removed the roof, they broke the roof. We would think, yikes, that's intense. And I know this is something we have spoken about before at some stage, but in Luke, it says it a little bit differently, and I know it's because Luke was writing to a different audience. I think it was a more Gentile audience, as far as I know. Is that right? Sure, got that one right. Um, but in Luke 5, verse 19, it says, Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on a stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Roof tiles? Now, we read roof tiles, and what do we think of? Roof tiles. Look at a roof that's got tiles. My roof's got tiles at home. It's individual tiles. And we can just think, oh, they were taking off those tiles or whatever. Okay. Since being in Israel... Oh, sorry. There's one more thing I wanted to show you. The Wailing Wall. Let me just see if it clicks in. Will it? Will it start? So can you see them placing their prayers in? And just watch this lady. I think you'll see it. <laughs> she was like, whoops. Okay. But just, just another thing. If you go there, now she clearly didn't know the way Jews feel about it. You don't turn your back on the wall and walk away. Once you've finished praying, you back off like that. And I had observed people doing that. And I realized that it was out of respect, so I did that. Because I am in their country, and I need to respect their culture. Okay. So I just wanted to give you a little idea. You can see all of them. Can you see how big those stones are, though? Hey? There? Massive. Massive, massive stones. Impressive. Okay. So we're back to the roof. So, roof. This actually was in Nazareth. It was really cool being in Nazareth, knowing that Jesus had run around there. Um, but this, I looked up and I was like, ah, this is the roof. So this is what they talked about. Reeds, which are very common there, common material, and mud, clay. Very common material there with supporting structures. Now, obviously, these beams are quite close. I don't know what all houses were like, but... This is how they built their roofs. And they actually had to maintain these roofs constantly, annually. Because obviously when they had rain, it would wear away and then they would have to redo them. Especially like the clay would harden in the sun, would go nice and hard, would make it waterproof. And it would... So what these guys did, they what they would have done is they would have broken through this clay. And they would have broken through the reeds... Maybe it was a good time. Maybe it was time for the roofs to be replaced and maintained. Hopefully. 
But can you see how having been there and having seen there, it definitely wasn't tiles. Not tiles in our way of imagining and not zinc in the way we would imagine or any other structures that we see around us. This is what it would have been like. Which again just makes it like, that makes sense. We know the roofs were flat. That's pretty cool. And um, their roofs are still. I don't know if Neil will show you any of the pictures, but their roofs are flat. Um, you don't get any roofs like this. They don't need it because the water, they hardly have any rain, so they don't need water runoff. But here it would have just made sense that they broke the, the clay off, they broke the reeds, and they could then lower the man down. Probably would have been a bit tricky for those guys underneath being like, hey, stop it, you're messing on us, you know. But I think it's just so fascinating when you start looking at these and you've been there, and there are numerous other examples like that, that I feel like just really do help my faith. Because it it brings it more alive for me. Don't we all want our Bible study to be alive, to be relevant, to be something that when we read it, we can be, yes, I know what it was like living there. You know, I can relate, I can connect to these people. So I think my, my encouragement is, if you really want to be able to have more vibrant Bible study, is take note of these little things when you read them and ponder them. And then go and Google it. Um, or if you need help, ask people. You know, ask me. I've got stuff from that I haven't even watched yet on Jerusalem that I probably am going to go back to now and watch. But it does just really help to build your faith, um, to go on pilgrimage. And we can go on pilgrimage virtually if we just dig a little bit. Okay, so that's my encouragement to you. It's awesome. Thanks.